So we will be looking at Mark chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. So the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The word of God for the people of God. So the way that Mark has told this story from chapter 1 on through has been sort of at a breakneck pace. He's just advancing the storyline. Um, some people would even say that the use of the Greek word immediately, euthus, it happens all over the place, and Mark is advancing the story, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened, until finally we get to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, and Mark recounts this, this crazy day in over 108 verses. We see the story beginning to come to its climax and its conclusion. Scholars have referred to not only Mark, but the other Gospels as passion narratives with extended introductions. This is the reason why they were writing these stories, because Jesus has been crucified and he has been raised from the dead. In Mark, just to, just to get our bearings, the things that we see in this 24-hour period, if we go back to Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, we have Jesus and his disciples in the upper room celebrating the Last Supper. This is something that happens after sunset. They have this meal. This is where Jesus institutes um, communion as we know it. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood that's shed for you. We see these, these moments and Jesus even predicting the betrayal that will happen at the hands of Judas. He says that Judas will hand him over without naming him. We have the Last Supper and Jesus and his friends and they're eating and then finally they, they leave and they go over to the Mount of Olives and Jesus begins to pray on Gethsemane and we see this angst-ridden prayer of Jesus to his Father. If there's any other way, if there's any other way that we can go about this, let's do that. But not my will, but yours be done. At the same time, we see Judas going about his business and beginning to betray Jesus leading a whole group of religious leaders to the garden 
to betray Jesus with a kiss. This is something that happens in late night, perhaps early morning, and then we move the narrative to the trial before Caiaphas, the high priest. I have the trial there in quotation marks because most scholars would say that the Jews had no power to kill anyone. They were conducting this this trial in order to get the charges that they could take now to Pilate, which is where we're going to be spending our time today. And this happens at daybreak. So from sunset the night before to daybreak, we've seen all of these different things that have happened. And as the story continues, Jesus will be crucified according to Mark at 9 a.m. Darkness will overcome the land from noon until 3. Jesus will utter his last words around 3 p.m. And then sometime before sunset, and remember in the Jewish reckoning of days, sunset to sunset constituted one day. So they wanted to get Jesus buried off the cross and buried before the Sabbath began. And this is where we meet Joseph of Arimathea who uh, brings Jesus to his burial all within the period of 24 hours. We see these events in Jesus's life. And sometimes I think, especially when we take weeks and weeks and weeks to, to talk about these things, it seems so spread out. But within a 24, a tumultuous 24 hour period, Jesus will be dead. Tonight we're going to be looking at Jesus' trial and conviction and sentence under Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate was the prefect of Judea. For the Harry Potter nerds, I'm not talking about this kind of prefect, the two of you. Bonus points if anyone knows who that is. Tom Riddle, Arthur's like, come on, bro. That's like easy. Um, The prefect of Judea was one who ruled over the land on behalf of Rome. Around 6 AD, Archelaus was a Jewish ruler, but he was so terrible that even the Jews asked the Romans to take him out of there and and just relieve the people from his terribleness. So they said, okay, but they began to institute Roman rulers, and Pontius Pilate was this person from around 26 CE to 36 CE. He was reigning and ruling over this period, and he had command over the civil and criminal cases that were to take place. So this makes sense that Jesus, having been tried by the the Jewish high priest, and now is in front of Pilate because Pilate was the one who had authority to completely end Jesus' life. Uh, One Jewish Christian philosopher named Philo famously describes Pilate as naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. Pilate did not have a great reputation. This is especially the case when we, when we see Pilate's just inability or unwillingness to learn anything at all about the Jewish religious system. He just was about his business. He wanted to keep the peace and he wanted things to be okay. The only reason why he was in Jerusalem at this time was because of Passover. Usually he lived way up in the north in Caesarea where he he wouldn't have to deal with these sorts of things. So Some commentators would say that he was there reluctantly and now getting woken up to, to deal with this sort of stuff was not something that he was looking forward to doing. What's interesting about this passage, though, is that Pilate, Mark says, is amazed at Jesus. Jesus really only says one thing. He says, you have said so. And then he says nothing else. But that was enough for Pilate to be amazed by who Jesus was. This is common throughout Mark's story where people are coming into an understanding of who Jesus is, 
and the amazement that his works, his miracles, his teachings can provide. And here Pilate is beginning to see some of that. Unfortunately, the way that Pilate ends this story is not one that indicates his true amazement. Yet we have this this line from Philo that says that he is relentless and he is inflexible. But when confronted by the king of the Jews, he's amazed. Some people have thought that the gospel authors have wanted to make Pilate look a little bit better than he actually was. Remember at the time, Rome was in power, and one of the underlying polemics that Israel wanted to put forth was, hey, we're not going to bother anybody. Don't, don't, be, don't be worried about us. So if they could create a story where Pilate is actually buying into that, it would be a good thing. So one commentator says, we should not think of the historical Pilate as a bloodthirsty monster whom the Gospels have thoroughly whitewashed. In other words, he's pushing back against this. This is not just the Gospel authors trying to make Pilate look better than he actually is. Instead, The picture of Pilate that emerges from Josephus, who is a a first century uh, historian, and other sources is one of a governor who usually antagonized his Jewish subjects more out of ignorance than out of malignity and sometimes relented under popular pressure. In other words, what they're saying is Pilate was someone who wanted to go about his business, and if he was picking on the Jews, it's just because he was ignorant to their customs and to their uh, religious festivals, perhaps, and their religious practices. He wasn't necessarily out to get them, but we do see that there was this underlying pressure that sometimes led Pilate to uh, make decisions that he might not make otherwise. The Jews, when they bring Jesus before him, they have a plan. In the the first verses of chapter 15, it says that the high priests, they're plotting and they're planning together. In the previous story, they've identified that Jesus is one who has blasphemed God. And for a Jewish audience, that was the worst sin that one could possibly commit. To equate oneself with God, which Jesus was doing by saying he's the Messiah and he was going to come on the clouds in power and he would be vindicated and these sorts of things. However, Pilate would not have cared one iota about Jesus' claims to divinity. But what Pilate would have cared about is a claim that Jesus may have been making to be the king because this would have upset the balance and that Roman power. This is something where Pilate would have flexed his muscles big time because he would not have wanted anyone to threaten his own empire, the empire that had been entrusted to him by the Roman emperor himself. So the Jews are smart in trying to get Jesus thrown under the bus, so to speak, by presenting this argument that the Gospels doesn't record for us. But Pilate's first words to Jesus are, are you the king of the Jews? Some commentators like to put in a a little bit of inflection there, like, seriously? You? You're a peasant. Why would anyone think you to be king? That might be a bit of reading in, but here we do see Pilate somewhat surprised that Jesus is being identified as the king of the Jews because, remember, his whole crew has abandoned him. He's alone, There's no one there to advocate for him. He's just by himself, and Jesus comes back with this. You have said so. In English, we miss this. 
But apparently, at the time, this was a pretty bold move for Jesus. This was not just a passive sort of, eh, this was a, yeah, now what, sort of a statement, which is, makes this story even stranger because Pilate still, after this and after Jesus is accused of many other things, Pilate is still amazed at this man who stands before him, who knows when to be quiet and who has only said this, this one phrase of, yeah, I'm the king. But the chief priests are accusing him of many things and Pilate is still amazed at what is going on. So Pilate contrives this this plan, the plan to release a prisoner. Text says, now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. And this is not the chief priests who come up and approach Pilate. This is the people, the crowd, the, the people that the high priests and the members of the Sanhedrin had gotten to, to be in attendance here. And Pilate approaches them and, and begins to ask them if they want him to release someone. What's weird about this is there's no text outside of the Bible that can um, confirm this. Nobody really knows what this custom was at the time, but Mark makes it clear that this is something that happened where a ruler in power may release a prisoner at the festival time to appease the people. Now, what gets Pilate uh, confused here? is when he asks this question, he says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, thinking that this certainly was someone that the people might want? He goes on to, to think, or at least this is Mark thinking for him, that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. So Pilate even sees through what's happening here. These religious leaders who are in authority just want Jesus to be out of the, of the way because they want their own power. They don't want anyone to, to be threatening their position. Pilate sees that and gives the crowd the opportunity to have him released. But the chief priests had stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Now, when I was growing up, I always thought that it was like the same crowd that was chanting for Jesus as he entered into the temple courts, like, Hosanna, Hosanna. The same crowd that was there is now the crowd over here that's saying, crucify him, kill him, we hate this guy, even though a couple days prior they were loving on him a bit. Most scholars, though, would want us to separate these two groups. Jesus, remember, is from the north, and he brings some people down with him. So the people in Jerusalem and Judea, they might not have been quite aware of, of what was going on or not had those close ties. So this people group might not have necessarily been tied to Jesus these people weren't also tied to Barabbas because it says that they were stirred up by Pilate to release Barabbas. Now, this is where things get interesting. For the most part, if you've spent any amount of time in church, you know this story. Jesus stands before Pilate. Pilate is kind of unwilling to sentence him. He wants to give the people an out. Barabbas is on the hook there. But Barabbas, it says in this text, he was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Nobody knows really what this is talking about either, what this big event was where Barabbas was actually in prison for the things that he has done. But the things that we do know is it seems like he has been one who has killed or has been involved with people who have killed. And it's thought that this event was roughly within the time frame of Jesus' life. It's also well known that Jesus or that Barabbas was not just some random dude. 
People knew who he was. People followed him in a sense. It would have been a, a big deal for him to be released. Barabbas was an anti-Roman right-wing zealot. Now remember, Pilate's in charge, and he does not want any, anyone who's claiming to be king. Yet Jesus is standing right before him. He's like, I don't see the big deal about this guy. But the other person who could potentially be released is described as one who is completely anti-empire. These are N.T. Wright's words, not my own. As a right-wing zealot who was involved in a murderous plot, potentially of Roman people. This is not someone that Pilate would have wanted to have back out on the streets because this is someone who was against what Rome stood for. Another uh, scholar would describe Barabbas as a high-minded patriot who has decided that the way of armed resistance is the most honorable option. Barabbas, murderer, zealot perhaps, anti-establishment, anti-government, anti-Rome, who has chosen the way of murder and violence, and Jesus, the king of the Jews, who just a few verses earlier has chastised his own disciples for chopping off the ear of someone who was out to get him. You come at me with swords and clubs when I was in the temple all the time. These two people could not be any more diametrically opposed. One more nerdy tidbit. In Aramaic, Barabbas comprises of two words that are lumped together. Bar, which means son of, and Abba, father. Barabbas' name could potentially be translated as son of the father. Jesus over here, the nonviolent activist who is just praying to Abba Father in the garden. And Barabbas over here, whose name seems to indicate son of the father, who could not be any more different than Jesus, one who has chosen violence as the way to incite the kingdom. It's also interesting that when Matthew retells this story, he doesn't refer to Barabbas simply as Barabbas. His name in Matthew is Jesus Barabbas. We've got these people out here who are chanting that they want Barabbas to be released, and we have these two pictures, these two completely different ideas of what it looked like to bring the kingdom. Jesus is one who has been bringing it through love and healing people and teaching people about repentance and about mercy and forgiveness. And here we have the, this right-wing anti-Roman zealot who's been killing people along the way. We have Jesus and Barabbas. And what's interesting about this story is Pilate continues by saying, what shall I do then with the one that you call the king of the Jews? The response, crucify him. This is the first time in the book of Mark that the term crucify has, has showed up. Jesus has told them over and over what's going to happen. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And here we see the people yelling to crucify him. What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. 
The text concludes by saying, wanting to satisfy the crowd and remember Philo's description of Pilate. And here we see him wanting to satisfy the crowd, giving in to peer pressure, giving in to this uh, influx of the religious leaders, but also this crowd that has been there, that has been planted there, in a sense, to, to bring this story to its conclusion. When we think about Pilate, there's not a lot in the book of Mark about him. It's just this passage here. But Pilate has become a central figure in the history of Christian theology. In a few weeks, when we begin this new series on the creeds, we'll go over some of this stuff. But in the historic Christian creeds that mark out the key tenets of orthodoxy, we see and we meet Pilate. This is the bit from the Nicene Creed about Jesus. It says, for us and for our salvation, Jesus came down from heaven. He became incarnate. He took on flesh. Eugene Peterson in the message says that Jesus moved into the neighborhood, coming down from his seat of authority into uh, this world. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. This story that many of you have already known and heard, there are certain things that I think we learn about these characters. What do we learn in particular about Pilate? First, we learn that he's amazed by Jesus and he's reluctant to condemn him. This person that's standing right in front of him that doesn't seem to fit the grid that should have, in many senses of the term, should have inspired his, his hatred. You have said so yourself that I'm the king. But Pilate is amazed, quieted, wanting to fight for this, this man who he can find no wrong in him. It's all well and good until we see how the story concludes with Pilate washing his hands of Jesus, handing him over to the crowd, to the Roman authorities, so that Jesus can die. In this story, that begins with a flogging. And we see Jesus being prepared for crucifixion. What do we learn about Jesus? We learn that he's innocent. We know that, hopefully. But we see this even from the mouth of a Roman leader. He's innocent. But even in the midst of that, he remains silent. Even in the midst of false accusations and the Roman uh, authorities potentially going to kill him, and even in, in light of his own Jewish religious leaders around putting these uh, accusations against him, Jesus is silent. And we see that contrasted with Barabbas, who is guilty of insurrection, guilty of murder, guilty yet he's pardoned. You can see this story as the gospel in a nutshell. There's a line, uh, there but for God's grace go I. In light of this, what we see here, Barabbas, the murderer who is sentenced to death and who is released and Jesus taking his place. It's emblematic of our own lives, where we bring our own junk, and perhaps it's not insurrectionist murder to the table, but we bring our own junk, and Jesus has stepped in 
to carry it for us. There's this great Old Testament image where God is the one who takes our sins and carries it for us, paying the price for us or owning the weight of our bad decisions and our brokenness and our suffering and our pain. One commentator actually said that when Jesus is crucified and he's flanked by two thieves on either side, that those two thieves were actually part of Barabbas' crew. And they were all awaiting to be killed together. But Barabbas is freed and Jesus takes his spot. I hope that tonight when we begin to think about our lives and who Jesus is and what he offers us, that we would allow ourselves to see the hope that he offers. In the midst of whatever it is that we're wrestling with and struggling with, whether it's the things that have been thrust upon us, the brokenness, the bad relationships, the oppression, and the suffering, or the things that we create for ourselves, Jesus steps in and carries it for us. The one who is silent and innocent takes our guilt and our shame and puts it to death. I know as I look around the room that for a lot of you that's old news, but I hope that not because of any great thing that I've said, but just because perhaps the Spirit is working in our lives, that tonight that truth becomes a reality that transforms us from the inside out so that the relationships that we have and the conversations that we have and the decisions that we make will reflect a wholehearted commitment to the gospel. Understanding that everything that we have and everything that we will have is based on God's goodness and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. I'm hopeful that we remember that often and that we are changed and transformed because of it. Let's pray. God, thanks for, thanks for who you are. Thanks for in the midst of our mess, you have stepped in and you have carried the weight of our sin and our brokenness. And we ask that you would allow us to experience wholeness, that you would allow us to experience forgiveness, that you would allow us to experience your grace and your mercy, and help us not to just keep that for ourselves, but help us to share that with people around us. God, we can read into this story in the Bible and, and think through what might have happened to Barabbas. But help us to be changed because of what we have received through your son. Help it not to be something that we just imagine or we hope for, but something that we can see and something that you constantly call us to each and every day. God, we are thankful for your grace and we are thankful for your goodness and we ask that as we begin to move towards celebrating communion together, that we would remember that often and remember it well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.